All right, so we are uh, continuing our series through the book of Genesis, and we find ourselves in chapters 29 and 30. Um, so we actually have quite a long passage this morning, but uh, I think we can make it through it. So we'll see. Um, so sin is kind of like salt water. So what salt water is to the body, sin is to the soul. So you could be really thirsty, you could be floating on the ocean, and you know, you might think, man, it'd be great to take a sip of this, um, drink some of this, but it would be completely detrimental, have the opposite effect, it would dehydrate you, it would make it worse, um, you would die. And yet, that's what sin is like for our souls, and we keep sipping, don't we? So C.S. Lewis um, great quote from Mere Christianity will kind of get us oriented here as we start before we head in to Genesis 29 and 30. So you can follow along up there because sometimes it's not always easy to follow along with C.S. Lewis, but um, I think you'll see why we want to take a look at this quote. Most people, if they have really looked, I'm sorry, learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I am now speaking I am not now speaking of what would be ordinarily called unsuccessful marriages or holidays or learned careers. I am speaking of the best possible ones. There was something we have grasped at in that first moment of longing which just fades away in the reality. I think everyone knows what I mean. The wife may be a good wife and the hotels and scenery may have been excellent and, the, and chemistry may be a very interesting job, but something has evaded us. What Satan put into the heads of our remote ancestors, Adam and Eve, was the idea that they could be like gods, could set up their own as if they had created themselves, be their own masters, invent some sort of happiness for themselves outside God, apart from God. The reason why it can never succeed is this. God made us, invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on petrol, British Gas, okay? And it would not run properly on anything else. Now, God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn <coughs> or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That is why it is just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. That is the key to history. So he's either crazy and wrong or he's wise and right. And so that key to history is the key and a central application in our passage this morning. So we need to see it. We need to learn this lesson over and over and over again throughout our lives. 
And we are so prone to fall for that primal temptation that caused the fall and continues to be humanity's downfall. Um, so we need to learn it again, whether for the first time or for the 500th time. All right, so there's an outline in the bulletin, or you'll see it here on the screen. We're going to start by reading verses 1 to 28 in Genesis 29. So you can find Genesis 29, first book of the Bible. Pretty easy to find. Genesis 29 is on page 23. So we're going to see how Jacob meets his match in these first 28 verses. All right. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. So he was sent by his father after he had deceived his father to get the birthright. Um, Esau wants to kill him. Mom catches wind and says, you know, you need to get out of here. Uh, and so Isaac blesses him and sends him off to find a wife among their kin back in Haran. So Jacob went on his journey, came to the land of the people of the east, and he looked and he saw a well in the field. And behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large. And when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? Laban is his mom's brother. They said, We know him. He said to them, Is it well with him? They said, It is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it's still high day. It's not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go. Pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. This might just be, um, it actually could be a couple different things. I think most um, interpreters think, you know, it was like this supernatural show of strength. Um, Jacob is really strong and he, you know, maybe love at first sight. Whoa, impressed the, the young lady here. Maybe she's my future wife. Um, but there actually are some other options, but we don't know, so let's not spend time on it. Um, verse 11, Then Jacob kissed Rachel, I don't think this is romantic yet, and wept aloud. He was all alone for 500 miles, and he actually got to where he was meaning to get, so there's relief here. He found his mother's family. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son, and she ran and told her father, as soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. Sounds like Genesis 2, right? Adam and Eve. In other words, you are family. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. 
Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. So we'll stop there for a second. What does it mean that Leah's eyes were weak? Does that mean that she would have had, if they had glasses back then, you know, Coke bottle glasses? Is that the point? Not likely. If, if that was the case, you'd expect the narrative to run something like this. Leah's eyes were weak, but man, Rachel, she, they didn't call her eagle, eagle eye Rachel for nothing. You know, she could see for a mile. It's an appearance comparison, not a 2020 as opposed to whatever comparison. So it's likely that she had maybe cross eyes or maybe protruding eyes or something that just really affected her appearance. Um, and it had to do with her eyes. So Jacob loved Rachel, verse 18, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. So he, offered, he doesn't have any money. He basically, you know, like carried whatever he had, 500 miles to get to his family. So he's got nothing to offer except labor. Seven years, that's probably something like two times the going rate for a dowry, okay? So he was hoping that Laban would not refuse his offer. And for Laban, it's obviously a win-win. And Laban, will learn, is an opportunist. So <laughs> Jacob certainly um, betrayed his deep love, right, for Rachel. And so he's going to exploit that weakness and use it to his advantage. Like if you're dealing with a huckster, you shouldn't tell him what you really want, right? You should kind of hold that back so he doesn't use it against you. Well, okay. So verse 19, Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. Notice that he didn't say yes directly. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. And all the romantics in the room just sigh and say, aww. Well, the point of that statement is, even though seven years of labor, labor was, again, something like two times the going rate for a dowry, Jacob never regretted his offer. That's the point. It was never a drudgery. He felt it was nothing for such a beauty as Rachel. Okay? Verse 21, Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife. Seems like he has to initiate, which probably means Laban wasn't proactively keeping his word. Oh, seven years already? You know, like, give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, Laban took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, probably veiled, and he went into her. We all can just go with the euphemisms, right? Okay. Um, Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you've done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob's got no leverage, and he really wants to marry Rachel. So he completes the week, because, you know, wedding was like a week long. 
Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. So we'll talk about that in a minute. But you can see, maybe, that there is a lot of irony in this passage. The deceiver, Jacob the deceiver, if you were here last week, you know, he's deceived Esau, he's deceived his father, and so the deceiver is now being deceived. He was able to deceive his elderly father because he was blind. His eyes were, in a sense, weak. And now he's deceived and wakes up to find his new wife with weak eyes. In the morning, it was Leah. He had pretended with Isaac to be someone he was not. He pretended to be Esau to obtain the blessing. And then Leah, by her father's leading and deception, pretended to be Rachel. So Jacob the younger, by his deception, was able to receive the blessing of the older, the firstborn. And Laban, by his deception, flipped the trick on Jacob. And Jacob received the older when he wanted the younger. Okay, so Jacob has met his match in Laban. He's been outmaneuvered. He gets a taste of his own medicine, right? So now he knows how Esau felt and his father felt. His sin, in a sense, is coming back to haunt him. He's reaping what he sowed. So Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. So you can imagine if he's got any kind of honesty, like internal honesty, honesty with himself, when he says there in verse 25, what is this you've done to me? Why then have you deceived me? Pointing the finger, there's three pointing back at himself, right? He indicts himself when he says that. And Laban is a mirror. Laban shows Jacob who he is. Okay, so Victor Hamilton writes this. He says, God has first, first of all, showed Jacob himself. Note the, oh, yeah, capital H. God has first showed Jacob himself, who he is as God. Now he will show Jacob himself his own heart. The method is to let Jacob spend the next 20 years living with a person whose character is much like his own. That is Laban. Jacob, this perpetrator of deceit, is about to become the victim of deceit at the hands of Laban. The irony is hard to miss. Jacob will see himself in Laban. So have you ever seen that dynamic at work in your life? Parents, you've probably seen this in your kids. <laughs> like, ooh, they're talking reacting, yelling, like, ah, that's me. You know what? Sometimes the people that you and I are most critical of are reflections of the very things we hate in ourselves. And the reason why we attack it is because we'd love to shift the spotlight away from the stuff we hate in here and focus it out there. So, again, in God's world, he uses mirrors pretty effectively, um, and they can come in the form of other people. So, when you see that judgmentalism rise up in your heart, your mind, towards someone else, instead of venting it, you might want to ask what it's revealing. 
about your own heart, betraying about your own life. So God used Laban to humble Jacob and to help him see who he really was. God will do that for us as well. Put people in our lives who are like a mirror. The whole passage, not just, you know, Jacob and Laban, but the whole passage can serve that way for us. Remember James 1, be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and just goes away and forgets what he looks like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hero who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. We should, we should see, we will see in the word what we look like, and we need to respond in faith and act on that. Trusting God and, by his grace, changing uh, more in the image of Jesus. So let's look at intently this morning with attentive hearts ready to respond. Um, so what we're going to do now is read the rest of this section, 29, 29, all the way to 30, verse 24, and then we'll consider points 2 to 6 in the outline. They'll go a little quicker. All right? So starting back in verse 29. Then Laban gave his daughter Rachel to be Jacob's wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, probably the focus of that is unloved, rejected, okay? Um, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name <coughs> Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. Um, I'll just say this quick, quickly here. I'm not going to take the time to kind of give every meaning of each son's name because guess what? If you have an ESV, just look down at the bottom. It's in the footnotes, okay? It's a little redundant. But the point is, each of these names is more like a word play than it is an etymology. It's not like Reuben means Yahweh has looked upon my affliction. It's a word play. Um, so there's a double word play actually here with Reuben. His name sounds like looked or seen and also love me. Okay, so the Lord has looked upon my affliction for now my husband will love me. So Reuben in, in Hebrew sounds a bit like both of those words. Okay, verse 33. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also, and she called his name Simeon, related to the verb to hear. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me, because I've borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. She conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, Give me children or, or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Well, it's obviously not me. You know, Leah's able to have kids. Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, Here is my servant Bilhah. Go into her. I mean, cue up the circus music, right? Like this... We've already gone down this road with Abraham and, and Sarah, and it just was a big mess. 
And here it goes again. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf. This was a typical cultural practice back then, so not all that uncommon, but certainly not God's design. Um, So that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her, and Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, With mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and Leah said, Good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, and Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother, Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, Then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. Okay, it's like echoes of the exchange Esau made for his birthright. So Jacob purchased the birthright by means of his bowl of stew, and here Leah is purchasing Jacob for the night for some mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night, and God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband, so she called his name Issachar. <laughs> um, yikes. Like, can you imagine Issachar, like, asking the meaning and origin of his name? Like, wouldn't you just love to have to explain that one to your son? So, mandrakes, just for what this is worth, um, may be considered an aphrodisiac, but more likely, you know, the thought was that they would help with fertility. Um, anyway, so the irony is, They didn't do Rachel any good in paying for her mandrakes to help herself get pregnant. Leah gets pregnant. So again, more irony. Verse 19, And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterward, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. When God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb, Then God remembered Rachel and listened to her and opened her room. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. All right. So, point number two, fallout from favoritism. So first off, do you see the irony? If you're familiar with these previous chapters, um, in fact, back in... Look at 2930 here first. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah. So maybe this is a little understandable, you know, because he really wanted to marry just Rachel, and he ended up because of the deceit with Leah. But favoritism was present and made a mess of things in the home he grew up in, right? So Isaac and Rebekah, they had their favorites. Isaac favored Esau. Rebekah favored Jacob. 
And so this is signaling trouble again, just like it was trouble back in the family that Jacob grew up in. It's going to wreak more havoc here. So, will it wreak similar havoc in his family? Of course. So, so Jacob is doing to Leah the very thing that his father did to him. And then sadly, it's going to continue with Jacob's children, right? There's strife within among his children because Leah's sons end up hating Joseph, right? And end up selling him into slavery. So once again, there's just cautionary tales all over this. So Rachel was Jacob's favorite. He loved her. He didn't love Leah. So she is this sad and tragic figure in this narrative. She is unwanted and unloved. Point number three. So we might look past this, but the rejection actually begins with her father. Think about that with Laban. It seems that Laban doesn't want to have to take care of Leah his whole life. He doesn't want to get stuck with her. So Leah is, in a sense, unwanted, not just by Jacob, but also by her father. He felt like he had to use deception and tell her to join the deceptive plot to marry her off. What does that do in the heart of a, of a daughter? So she knew her father didn't want to have to care for her all her life. She's unwanted in that sense, and obviously unwanted, you know, by her new husband, Jacob. And not only that, to kind of add insult to injury, her new, her new husband really wants her sister. So just think about what that's like on a regular basis <laughs> to have to deal with that. So Leah's naming of her sons reflects this inner struggle to deal with being unloved by Jacob. It is just so sad and pathetic to read. So Reuben, now I'll be seen. I'll be visible to my husband. So she felt invisible. Simeon, the Lord heard that I'm hated. Maybe now my husband won't hate me because I've borne him two sons. Levi, now this time my husband will be attached to me. She felt rejected and alone. And then down to the sixth son, Zebulun, down in in chapter 30, verse 19 and 20. Now my husband will honor me instead of that burning shame of being second fiddle all the time to Rachel. So some years ago, I heard this song by an artist named Skylar Gray, and I've just never forgotten it. It's it's really sad. (laughs) Um, the, the song is called Invisible, and yet it's so true to reality uh, for so many in this world where everyone is restless until they find their rest in God, aching and longing for love and peace and belonging, and they're not going to find it until they find their home in God. So listen to these words. Um, she sings, I take these pills to make me thin. I dye my hair and cut my skin. I tried everything to make them see me. But all they see is someone that's not me. And then the chorus goes like this. Even when I'm walking on a wire, even when I set myself on fire, why do I always feel invisible? Every day I try to look my best, even though inside I'm such a mess. Why do I always feel invisible? And then the second stanza is, 
Here inside my quiet heart, you cannot hear my cries for help. I tried everything to make them see me, but everyone sees what I can't be. So Leah is not loved, and she tries desperately to be acceptable and loved by her husband. She's got this inconsolable longing. And actually, so does Rachel. And actually, so does Jacob. But let's see it first here in Leah. So point number four, the inconsolable longing. So this passage is filled with disappointment and longing and frustration and dissatisfaction. So C.S. Lewis called the root of all of this our inconsolable secret. We have this inconsolable longing and nothing in this world can satisfy it. So each character, each main character has this and they're all disappointed. So Jacob is like, Rachel is heaven. If I have Rachel, I have everything I, I want. And seven years, just a few days. And then he wakes up and behold, it's Leah. Or later on, Rachel yelling at him, am I in the place of God? So that, that kind of bubble, this perfect picture is burst pretty quickly. Leah, I'm finally going to have happiness. I'm going to be loved by my husband because I'm going to bear him all these sons. And it doesn't happen. Rachel, I'm finally going to have hap- happiness bearing children. And she's barren and just struggling to deal with that um, barrenness. So this is like a miniature version of our cosmic disillusionment, <laughs> which is our lot as human beings, experienced from Eden onwards. No matter your hopes for marriage, career, family, vacations, retirement, you know, fill in the blank, none of it's going to satisfy you, even the best of each of those things. If you gain it all, you can gain the whole world and you'll still forfeit your soul. So a couple, couple more quotes here. Um, getting at this inconsolable longing. First, Cornelius Plantiga and then C.S. Lewis again. So they're up on the screen so you can track with them. I know these quotes are a little long, but they're really, I think, worth considering. So the truth is that nothing in this earth can finally satisfy us. Much can make us content for a time, but nothing can fill us to the brim. The reason is that our final joy lies, quote, beyond the walls of this world, as J.R.R. Tolkien put it. Ultimately, beauty comes not from a lover or a landscape or a home, but only through them. These earthly things are solid goods, and we naturally relish them, but they are not our final good. They point to what is higher up and further back. Even if we fall deeply in love and marry another human being, we discover that our spiritual and sexual oneness isn't final. It can be wonderful, but it cannot be final. It might even be as good as human oneness can be, but something in us keeps saying, not this, or still beyond. What Augustine knew is that human beings want God. God made us for himself. Our sense of God runs in us like a stream, even though because of sin we divert it toward other objects. We human beings want God even when we think that what we really want is a green valley or a good time from our past or a loved one. Of course we do want these things in persons, but we also want what's behind them. 
our inconsolable secret, says C.S. Lewis, is that we are full of yearnings, sometimes shy and sometimes passionate, that point us beyond the things of earth to the ultimate reality of God. And Plantinga is referring to the following quote from C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory. We cannot tell our inconsolable secret because it is a desire for something that has never actually appeared in our experience. We cannot hide it because our experience is constantly suggesting it. We remain conscious of a desire which no natural happiness will satisfy. But is there any reason to suppose that reality offers any satisfaction to it? Nor does the, does the being hungry prove that we have bread. But I think it may be urged that this misses the point. He's quoting someone there. So a man's physical hunger does not prove that man will get any bread. He may die of starvation on a raft in the Atlantic. But surely a man's hunger does prove that he comes of a race which repairs its body by eating and inhabits a world where eatable substances exist. In the same way, though I do not believe that my desire for paradise proves that I shall enjoy it, I think it a pretty good indication that such a thing exists and that some men will. The sense that in this universe we are treated as strangers, the longing to be acknowledged, to meet with some response, to bridge some chasm that yawns between us and reality is part of our inconsolable secret. And surely from this point of view, the promise of glory in the sense described, becomes highly relevant to our deep desire. For glory means good report with God, acceptance by God, response, acknowledgement, and welcome into the heart of things. The door on which we've been knocking all our lives will open at last. At present, we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and purity of the morning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see, but all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. So do you resonate with that? Like, how often do we put our hopes in people or things or experiences, if only? And oftentimes, the frustration of our desire is exactly why that lie can keep, we can keep believing it because we've never actually obtained it. We think, well, if I, if I was a little more or a little better or this, th then I would finally be satisfied. And we're driven for it, and we keep trying to stuff our souls with something that'll satisfy us. But people that do obtain it, they look around and go, is, is that it? So we've all experienced this. I heard, I heard one preacher say that when you experience this, there's one of four ways you can go. You can blame the things you have. Well, the real problem is I don't have enough or I don't have it good enough, you know? If I had a better wife, a better marriage, better husband, you know, more money, better job, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Or you can blame yourself. Well, I, I just screwed everything up and I hate myself and, you know, you can blame life, just kind of harden yourself against the future and never hope for anything again. Or you can blame your theory of reality, the lie that was sold in the garden, and say, if there is nothing in this world that can satisfy, then it must mean that my satisfaction lies beyond this world. Psalm 73. 
Nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my life and my portion forever. I am made for someone beyond this world. So, if we try to stuff our souls with something other than God to satisfy us, that idol will never do it. It will only break our hearts. And Leah is testimony to that. Her naming, her, her naming like, oh, this, 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 reflects her struggle to deal with being unloved by Jacob. Rachel's naming reflects her inner struggle of envy. <laughs> and there's this outer struggle of rivalry in dealing with her infertility and Leah's fertility and all of that. And she's blaming her husband. And So when we try to stuff our hearts with idols, we either become emotionally dependent or controlling, and thankfully God doesn't leave us here. He is the great idol smasher, and he comes in and smashes those idols and gives us himself. So where is God in this mess in chapters 29 and 30? Well, let's just step back and look. There is some mysterious and wonderfully merciful providence at work here. Point number five. So look at what's going on here. The names. Did you notice the names of some of Leah's kids? So she's the rejected, the ugly, the unwanted, the homely, the lonely, and she became the mother of Jesus' descendants. So when the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, did you see that? Here is God loving one who has been rejected, whom others do not love. He wants the one who no one else wants. He is this heavenly husband and bridegroom pursuing mercifully Leah. So despite the circus, despite the deceit, God can still fulfill and will fulfill his purposes. Listen to this quote by Sidney Gradonis. His father-in-law Laban had become his adversary, and with two wives and their maids, there is constant tension in the household. Jacob has made a mess of his life. It seems that the Lord has forsaken him. Where is the Lord who had promised to keep him and to give him as many offspring as the dust of the earth? I mean, if you're reading this, you would think, where is God in this? Well, God gets the last word. The Lord had promised Jacob offspring like the sand on the seashore. And he was unmarried, and then once he does find a wife, whoa, it's Leah. And then Rachel, the wife that he does want, is barren. Seems like the Lord is absent, but as he had promised back in chapter 28, 15, I am with you wherever you go. So God is working here in his providence, mysteriously, mercifully. Leah the rejected becomes the mother of priests and kings. The unwanted, unloved, becomes the mother of these vitally important tribes in the story of redemption that ultimately lead to the Messiah, Judah's line. And all of that through this circus full of deception and drama and envy and rivalry. So that's why the scripture reading was Genesis 49 and Matthew 1. Look at it again, Genesis 49, 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him, to an offspring of Judah, 
shall be the obedience of the peoples, ultimately pointing to Jesus. So Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah. So Leah is this tragic figure, but she's also a sign of mercy and hope. <laughs> and isn't that encouraging? Because usually we are kind of a mixed bag, right? kind of a mess. Can God work in the midst of the mess, or does he just work with the clean, you know, buttoned-up people? Or are you offended by this mess? <laughs> like, are you offended by the polygamy and the circus, you know, all this kind of belongs on a daytime talk show? Well, we could respond that way, or we could actually be encouraged that God works with really weak, messy people. I mean, aren't you glad? Like, there's hope for us. God isn't hamstrung by sinful, messy people. Aren't you glad? So if we're offended by the messiness here, and certainly the Bible's not condoning polygamy, it's showing what a mess it makes. Do we really think that the Bible should be a book of role models and heroes from start to finish? A book of virtues and inspirational stories? Now certainly there's virtue and there are inspirational stories, but if you think it's all supposed to be like that, that would only make sense if salvation is a ladder that we climb to make it up to heaven. No, the Bible is all about, I'm going to come down and rescue you because you've made a mess. That's the story of the Bible. And Leah, what a mess, is the grandmother of the Messiah. Judah is the forefather of Jesus. So, again, I'm quoting a lot this morning, but they're helpful. Um, a guy named Von Rad, did I give you that one, Chad? Um, without Leah, no? No. Okay. Yeah, let's skip that one. All right. So um, just fast forward even to Genesis 45. Once again, God used the deception of Jacob's sons to save Jacob's family. They sold their brother like they intended this for evil, and it saved their lives. Like God is working this mysterious, wonderful, merciful providence. And so the deception ends up serving God's purposes. And ultimately, how about the deception that's all around the crucifixion? You know, the betrayal by Judas, kangaroo court, false testimony, and God is working through that deceit to bring about his sovereign purposes, his covenantal mercy and his promises. So Jacob wanted to marry Rachel, but Laban deceived him. He married Leah. Jacob wanted to build a family through Rachel, but God closed her womb. Leah got pregnant repeatedly. God will bring about his blessing in his way and time. Jacob can't make it happen, and neither can we. But God will fulfill his covenant promises and purposes. Despite our mess, despite when we try to take matters into our own hands. And so we see the mirror and the mercy. The mirror of, oh man, yeah, that's kind of like my life and family and mess and my own heart. But there's mercy. And look at how God's working to bring about his purposes. God is blessing each one of these messy sinners by grace through covenant mercy. 
And that same covenant mercy is available to you and me. Isn't it comforting to know that God can work and bless messy sinners like them, like you and me? So God intentionally, willingly, lovingly, look at this, writes himself into this story, into our family tree. You realize this, Matthew 1, that genealogy, God took our ancestral sins as his own family history by choosing this crazy soap opera <laughs> as his earthly ancestry. He's not ashamed. No wonder, because he came to bring mercy to us, to messy soap opera sinners like us. He came to rescue us from ourselves, and he came to satisfy foolish rebels who've been trying to stuff their souls full of stuff that'll never satisfy. So we end, fittingly, this morning by coming to the table. So remember that inconsolable longing, that secret? Anybody resonate with that? Have, like, sometimes you just feel like you, you get this taste and even nostalgically, we can wish to get back to that spot. But the point is, it wasn't that thing or that event or that person. It was, it was a little bit of God through them. They were pointing beyond themselves to the only one that can really satisfy you. So we resonate that with that. We resonate with the ache and the longing that nothing on this earth can really satisfy. Anyone feel, I mean, anyone re resonate with Leah? feel ugly physically spiritually both and rejected discarded unwanted unloved ashamed the only eyes that matter look on you with love and have poured out love while we're still sinners he knows how ugly we are looking on you with love and mercy. If you are in Christ, you are a beauty in the eyes of God. Some of you are pushing back right now in your minds. If you're in Christ, how did, how did God the Father speak of Jesus? This is my beloved Son. In Him I am well pleased. If you are in Christ, you are totally justified and righteous and clothed with His righteousness. And so, you are totally accepted. If we really believe that, we would stop having to scramble to make everybody happy all around us and be so afraid of the frown of other people. That is the root of killing people pleasing in fear of man, is knowing the approval of God through Christ. So the only eyes that matter through Christ accept you totally by grace through faith in Jesus. So only God through Christ can cleanse our dirty hearts from the mess. Only God through Christ can satisfy our longing hearts, our aching hearts. We were made for God and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Him, like Augustine said. So I'm going to close here by reading a few passages that are 
like invitations to come to the table. So just close your eyes and listen to these. This is God speaking to you to come to him and be satisfied. Stop trying to stuff something else in your soul to be satisfied. Only Jesus can satisfy the inconsolable longing. And then we're going to participate in the table together here in a minute. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 to 30. Come to me, Jesus said. All who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. John 4, Jesus said to the woman at the well, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. John 6, 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And then Isaiah 55, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant my steadfast, sure love for David. So only Jesus can satisfy the inconsolable longing. If you're in Christ, you've learned that, but we need to keep learning that. We need to keep believing it. We need to hear it again and again. We forget. We wander. We're so prone to wander. So this table is both mercy for the wandering. Jesus died to forgive past, present, future, all of our foolish wandering. And this table is also food for our souls because Jesus is the bread of life. He is the living water, so we eat and we drink. It's all ours because of the cross. So we proclaim his death and say, thank you, Jesus, that I have grace to satisfy my soul in you. I can have you. So if the men that are going to serve um, can come forward, we're going to come to the table and let's feed on the Lord Jesus and all of his grace.